This is Shakespeare Unbarred, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, it's time for the pomp and pageantry of Henry VIII. I come no more to make you laugh, things now that bear a weighty and a serious brow. When I came hither, I was Lord High Constable and Duke of Buckingham. Now, poor Edward Bowen. It seems the marriage with his brother's wife has crept too near his conscience. No, his conscience has crept too near another lady. Yes, sir. My lords, I thank you both for your good wills. Ye speak like honest men. Pray God ye prove so. All right, as always, we are going to start with a short summary. How short? Siri, set the timer for one minute. Your timer is set for one minute. All is rotten in the state of England. Cardinal Wolsey is a favorite of King Henry VIII, a position that gives him way too much power, which he uses to have the Duke of Buckingham arrested for treason. The Queen, otherwise known as Catherine of Aragon, objects to this arrest and the ways Wolsey is using the tax system to get rich. At a banquet for Wolsey, the King meets a comely young lady who calls herself Anne Boleyn. Wolsey, sensing an enemy in Catherine, moves to have Catherine deposed and her marriage declared null and void on the grounds that Henry should never have married his brother's widow. Catherine defends herself well, but history is against her. It's against Wolsey, too, who soon has his treachery revealed, and he is carted away. Henry divorces Catherine, marries Anne Boleyn in an elaborate wedding ceremony. There's some minor drama revolving around the king, Wolsey's replacement Thomas Cromwell, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, but for all intents and purposes, the play is over, and Shakespeare's really just marking time until the end, when Anne Boleyn's daughter, the future Queen Elizabeth, is born. Just as King Lear isn't about King Lear and Julius Caesar isn't about Julius Caesar, Henry VIII isn't about Henry VIII. Its central figures are Wolsey and Catherine, each of whom emerge as the protagonists in what amounts to be an uneven historical epic. Now, it's unfortunate that this isn't a better play, given that the story of Henry VIII seems to be one that Shakespeare was destined to write. He is, after all, the creator of two other historical epics, the four plays that span the War of the Roses and uh, the four that deal with Henry V. And it's really fun to imagine what Shakespeare might have done had he been given free reign with the manic story of Henry VIII, that king who ran through six wives in his quest for a son and caused so much upheaval and drama that his story still resonates today. Given the number of books, movies, and television shows that deal with the world of Henry VIII, I sometimes think we're all trying to make up for this gap in Shakespeare's career. Poor Shakespeare was actually the perfect person to write about Henry's world, but he was born far too soon to do so. Queen Elizabeth, the daughter of Henry and his second wife Anne Boleyn, was Shakespeare's patron for many years. Her death probably freed him to write this play, but he was still living only 70 years since Henry's death, making it unlikely Shakespeare could tell the story in a manner that might be even slightly insulting to the memory of the king. And so we get the famous history of Henry VIII, otherwise known as All Is True, which is more a pageant than a play and a fairly anodyne recounting of historical events. For the Shakespearean scholar, several things make this play stand out. It has a lot of stage directions, it was co-written with John Fletcher, and it's the reason the Globe Theatre burned down in 1613. A cannon went off and started a fire. 
For audiences who don't care about such things, Henry VIII is a play that lacks a central protagonist or any strong dramatic action. Even the Henry VI plays, weak as they are, have all that fighting from time to time that'll wake you up if you've fallen asleep. But in Henry VIII, no one ever draws a sword. Even so, the play has not been entirely absent from the world stage. Never underestimate the appeal of pageantry or the opportunity for aging actors to play a title character. Scholars have divided up the play between Fletcher and Shakespeare, ascribing certain scenes to one or the other, but for the sake of simplicity, I'm going to examine the whole play as a piece. Fletcher and Shakespeare are to be equally commended for the play's successes and equally blamed for its faults. Now, the play's opening scene, though wordy, is surprisingly strong. Reminiscent of Henry V, it introduces us to two relatively minor characters who discuss the politics of the court, yet this scene has a solid dramatic thrust with the Duke of Buckingham being arrested by the time the scene ends. Not all of Shakespeare's plays have such dynamic openings, especially where the histories are concerned. Shakespeare often used the first scene to establish the politics of court, as he does in Henry VIII, making the first moment of the play heavy with exposition. Henry VIII is no less heavy, and yet, by ending the scene with an arrest, Shakespeare is immediately telling the audience both who the play's villain is and that he's an all-too-credible threat. Wolsey does continue to be the focus of the story as we move into subsequent scenes, and indeed, for half the play, it does seem that we actually do have a protagonist. Shakespeare had focused on villains before, of course, but unlike Richard III and Iago, Wolsey does not directly address the audience, nor does he ever blatantly spell out his evil intentions. Nonetheless, Wolsey remains the play's primary focus. In the very first scene, he arrests Buckingham. In the second, he goes head-to-head -head with the Queen to defend his policies. And it is at his banquet that Henry VIII meets young Anne Boleyn. In this history, according to Shakespeare, Wolsey is a figure of enormous import. Whether or not this is historically accurate is for historians to decide. By now, Shakespeare understood that for an historical play to work, it has to be as focused as possible. Recall how the Henry VI plays were episodic in design, with the story shifting focus from one character to another. Richard III, however, was focused on Richard, while Henry IV, and later Henry V, was focused entirely on Prince Hal. Even Julius Caesar is focused on telling us the story of Brutus and Cassius, rather than attempting some panoramic vision of everything that was happening in ancient Rome. In dividing authorship, scholars generally attribute the first act to Shakespeare, and the act's focus on a single character, Cardinal Wolsey, is the greatest proof that it is of Shakespearean design. Shakespeare's influence continues to be felt as we move into the second act. After two nobodies discuss Buckingham's trial, Buckingham himself enters and says goodbye to the world, and this speech, which incidentally was probably written by Fletcher, does a good job of revisionist history. It mentions how the previous Duke of Buckingham was killed by Richard III, but does not mention that before that, Buckingham was also Richard's ally. My noble father, Henry of Buckingham, who first raised head against usurping Richard, flying for succor to his servant Bannister, being distressed, was by that wretch betrayed, and without trial fell. God's peace be with him. Henry the Seventh, succeeding, truly pitying my father's loss like a most royal prince, restored me to my honors, and out of ruins made my name once more noble. Now his son, Henry the Eighth, Life, honor, name, and all that made me happy at one stroke has taken forever from the world. 
With Buckingham gone, Wolsey is now set to lay his charges against his other enemy in court, Queen Catherine of Aragon. Catherine is Shakespeare's last queen, at least in the plays that have survived, and while she isn't as memorable, say, as Lady Macbeth, she nonetheless has a directness and ferocity that make her a sincere threat to Wolsey's designs. Unafraid to address her grievances, she petitions her husband in open court and assails him with reason and cool rationale. No, my lord. You know no more than others, but you frame things that are known alike, which are not wholesome to those which would not know them, and yet must perforce be their acquaintance. These exactions, whereof my sovereign would have note, they are most pestilent to the hearing, and to bear them the back is sacrificed to the load. They say they are devised by you, or else you suffer too hard an exclamation. Still exaction! The nature of it! In what kind, let's know, is this exaction? I am much too venturous in tempting of your patience, but emboldened under your promised pardon. The subject's grief comes through commissions, which compels from each the sixth part of his substance to be levied without delay, and the pretense for this is named your wars in France. This makes bold mouths, tongues spit their duties out, and cold hearts freeze allegiance in them. Their curses now live where their prayers did, and it's come to pass this tractable obedience is a slave to each insensate will. I would your highness would give it quick consideration, for there is no primer business. Catherine is a rival for influence, and Wolsey begins to arrange his pieces on the political chessboard, ready to strike. Henry VIII wants out of his marriage to his brother's widow, and Wolsey is only happy to oblige. As we'll later find out, Wolsey is actually acting as a double agent and is conspiring against Henry even as he appears to be helping him. Shakespeare and Fletcher may have been careful in how they present the motivations for everything, and while they do pay lip service to the notion that Henry may just be doing everything because he's in love with Anne Boleyn, they also make sure that the play asserts its own thesis with gusto and tells us who they think the real villain actually is. How is the king employed? I left him private, full of sad thoughts and troubles. What's the cause? It seems the marriage with his brother's wife has crept too near his conscience. No, his conscience has crept too near another lady. It is so. This is the cardinal's doing. The king cardinal, that blind priest, like the eldest son of fortune, turns what he list. The king will know him one day. Pray God he do. He'll never know himself else. How holily he works in all his business, and with what zeal. For now he has cracked the league between us and the emperor, the queen's great nephew, he dives into the king's soul. And there scatters dangers, doubts, ringing of the conscience, fears and despairs, and all these for his marriage. And out of all these, to restore the king, he counsels a divorce, a loss of her that, like a jewel, has hung twenty years about his neck, yet never lost her luster. In other words, history still belongs to Wolsey. He's to blame for everything. He even presides over the trial that occurs to determine Catherine's legitimacy. Shakespeare gets a lot of credit for his many inventions, but I'm not sure if anyone has ever given him a gold star for his talent when it comes to courtroom drama. The courtroom scene in The Merchant of Venice is the only good part of that terrible play, while Hermione's trial scene is the standout in The Winner's Tale. Now here, once again, Shakespeare proves his worth. Catherine, like Hermione before her, is a queen called upon to defend her own worth, and she addresses the court with the very dignity and intelligence that has so marked her as an enemy for Wolsey. My lord, my lord, I am a simple woman. 
much too weak to oppose your cunning. You are meek and humble-mouthed. You sign your place and calling in full seeming with meekness and humility. But your heart is crammed with arrogancy, spleen and pride. You have, by fortune and his highness' favours, gone slightly o'er low steps, and now are mounted where powers are your retainers, and your words, domestics to you, serve your will as please yourself pronounce their office. I must tell you, you tender more your person's honour than your high profession spiritual, that again I do refuse you for my judge. And here, before you all, appeal unto the Pope to bring my whole cause for his holiness and to be judged by him. Of course, there's nothing weak about Catherine, and she has cunning of her own. She refuses to acknowledge that the court has any jurisdiction over her and exits with her attendants in tow. Her emotional plea gets the court on her side, including Henry, who finally begins to suspect that Wolsey may be trifling with him. Wolsey, scenting the danger, confronts Catherine in private in what is one of the play's strongest scenes. Ye tell me what ye wish for both. My ruin. Is this your Christian counsel? Out upon ye. Heaven is above all yet. There sits a judge that no king can corrupt. Your rage mistakes us. The more shame for ye. Holy men, I saw she, upon my soul, to reverend cardinal virtues. But cardinal sins and hollow hearts, I fear ye. Mend them for shame, my lords. Is this your comfort? The cordial that ye bring a wretched lady? A woman lost among ye? Laughed at? Scorned? I will not wish ye half my miseries. I have more charity. But say I warned ye. Take heed. For heaven's sake, take heed. Lest at once the burthen of my sorrows fall upon ye. Madam, this is a mere distraction. You turn the good we offer into envy. Ye turn me into nothing. Woe upon ye, and all such false professors! From here on in the play charts Wolsey's downfall, his nobles plot against him, and the king realizes that Wolsey is not to be trusted. The various machinations could give any episode of House of Cards a run for its money, and the entire third act of the play is made up of plots, schemes, and compromising letters. Wolsey, sensing he's arrived on the eve of his own destruction, sends away Thomas Cromwell, his loyal follower, with one final piece of advice. Go, get thee from me, Cromwell. I am a poor fallen man, unworthy now to be thy lord and master. Seek the king, that son I pray may never set. I have told him what and how true thou art. He will advance thee. Some little memory of me will stir him. I know his noble nature, not to let thy hopeful service perish too. Good Cromwell, neglect him not. Make use now, and provide for thine own future safety. Oh, my lord, must I then leave you? Must I needs forgo so good, so noble, and so true a master? Bear witness, all that have not hearts of iron, with what a sorrow Cromwell leaves his lord. The king shall have my service, but my prayers... Forever and forever shall be yours. 
As I've said, until now, Wolsey has been our protagonist, a screaming courtier who is undone before our eyes. Henry VIII would be a much more satisfying play had it ended here, with Wolsey being carted off with his final line. Farewell, the hopes of courts. My hopes in heaven do dwell. An entire play devoted to Wolsey's machinations might have been a glorious thing. Dramatically speaking, Wolsey had the potential to be another Richard III or Iago. He is drawn from the same well, the scheming manipulator intent on influencing those in power for his own designs. Unfortunately for the history of drama, or I suppose for theatergoers, the play continues for another two acts. Not wanting, or knowing it was unfeasible, to dramatize Henry's divorce from Catherine and the subsequent courtship of Anne Boleyn, Shakespeare and Fletcher leap right over these events and take us right to the wedding. Here we are treated to a lengthy coronation scene in which Anne Boleyn becomes queen. Now this coronation is written out in length in the stage directions, and it includes trumpets, a choir, a scepter of gold, and every flower in the kingdom. Some wedding guests talk about Cromwell, and there's some middling drama regarding the Archbishop of Canterbury, but as I've said in the synopsis, for all intents and purposes, this play is over. We have lost our protagonist, and Shakespeare is just killing time until Queen Elizabeth I can be born. Without Wolsey, no character ever arrives to take his place as the central hero of our story. Shakespeare and Fletcher have just returned to the episodic schematic that was employed in the earliest of Shakespeare's history plays, and the result is more or less the same. The singular highlight might be Catherine's final speech, where she continues to reveal her nobility of character. Remember me in all humility unto his highness. Say... His long trouble now is passing out of this world. Tell him in death I blessed him, for so I will. Mine eyes grow dim. Farewell, my lord. Griffith, farewell. Nay, patience. Madam? You must not leave me yet. I must to bed, call in more women. When I am dead, good wench, let me be used with honor. Strew me over with maiden flowers, that all the world may know I was a chaste wife to my grave. Embalm me, then lay me forth. Although unqueened, yet like a queen, and daughter to a king, inter me. I can no more. Dramatically, Catherine and Wolsey are the only two characters in this play with any semblance of a dramatic arc. Both go from power to disgrace. In Richard II, Shakespeare followed Richard into the dungeon after he had been deposed, allowing us to sympathize with the monarch in his final days. Now, he dared not do the same with Wolsey. For political purposes, it was probably necessary to present him as the uh, complete villain without any sympathy. But he was able to give us one final scene with Catherine of Aragon, who does emerge as a character of great dignity, who was so unfortunately abused. Tis ten to one this play can never please all that are here. Some come to take their ease and sleep an act or two, but those, we fear, we have frighted with our trumpets, so tis clear they'll say it is naught. Others to hear the city abused extremely and to cry, that's witty, which we have not done neither. 
that I fear all the expected good we are like to hear for this play at this time is only in the merciful construction of good women, for such a one we show them. If they smile and say it will do, I know within a while all the best men are ours, for tis ill hap if they hold when their ladies bid them clap. And now comes the part in the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. Now, I actually quite like the BBC's version of this play, which is stodgy as always, but remains faithful and parades the usual group of British stalwarts across the screen. The Brits generally seem to be the best people to portray episodes from their own history. For a more recent and far more energetic production, also done by a team of Brits, I'm going to recommend a filmed version of a production done at the New Globe Theatre in 2010. Ian McNeese is a tremendous Wolsey, full of Machiavellian schemes and conniving intent. He plays the role as if he really is Richard III or Iago, and it's truly satisfying when he is finally knocked down to earth. Dominic Rowan is a classic Henry VIII, while Kate Duchesne gives Catherine a lot of fire and verve. Her Catherine is a modern woman, completely aware that she's been caught up in the schemes of men. The production also doesn't skimp on the spectacle, which, for good or bad, is an integral part of this show. Some edits were made to the text, but it's essentially a faithful rendition, and given the unpopularity of this play, it's likely to be one of the only modern recordings you'll ever be able to see. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. Well, that's it for this episode of Shakespeare Unbarred. Next week, we reach the end of the canon with the only one of Shakespeare's plays that has never been filmed. It's time for The Two Noble Kinsmen. Thanks so much for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred. If you want to get all the episodes or find out more about what I do with my time, please visit my website at www.joelfishbane.net. While you're there, you can check out all the things I do, including figure out how to get your hands on a copy of my book, The Thunder of Giants. A story about two eight-foot-tall women who struggled to survive in a world much too small to contain them. It's available from St. Martin's Press. Pick up your copy today, preferably at full price. That's it for this episode of Shakespeare Unbarred. 37 plays down, one to go. Will Shakespeare has a play. Let's go and cough through it.